access to parks has been a central part of the civil rights movement ever since Brown versus Board of Education. And shortly after Brown, the NAACP Legal Defense Fund took another case to the U.S. Supreme Court. And the U.S. Supreme Court recognized that the principle in Brown of equal justice and dignity for all applied to other publicly funded resources as well, including municipal parks and pools. Welcome to Infinite Earth Radio. We believe that in a world of finite natural resources, a smart and sustainable future is only possible by lifting up people and unleashing unlimited human potential. Infinite Earth Radio will not only help you learn from bright, visionary civic leaders who are building smarter, more inclusive and sustainable communities, but you'll discover how you can bring these ideas to your community. And now, here are your hosts, Mike Hancocks and Vernice Miller-Travis. Hey everyone, welcome back to Infinite Earth Radio, where we talk with thought leaders and change agents who are transforming the future by building smarter, more sustainable, and more equitable communities. We have a special announcement and offer for you this week. In late January or early February, SKIO and the Local Government Commission are launching a training program for local sustainability and equity leaders called Infinite Earth Lab. Infinite Earth Lab will have two major components. The first is the seven-step Infinite Earth Change Model training program focused on developing the skills necessary to become more effective in your sustainability and equity efforts. The second component of the training will be a year-long online networking opportunity with other committed local sustainability and equity leaders. We want to offer our listeners an opportunity to become a founding member of Infinite Earth Lab at a super discounted price of just $97. There are two ways you can get this exciting new program at the discounted price. First, if you are attending the new Partners for Smart Growth Conference on February 2nd through the 4th in St. Louis, you can add the lab to your registration by going to newpartners.org and registering for the conference and adding the lab as part of that registration process. If you are not attending and would like to take advantage of the pre-launch discount, you can get on a waiting list by going to infiniteearthradio.com slash waitlist. Folks who put their name on the waitlist will get first crack at one of the limited charter memberships at the discounted price. So now to the podcast. We are taking one more week off for the holidays, so today we are resharing one of our favorite interviews with Robert Garcia about access to nature and recreation as a civil right. Robert is an amazing man doing vitally important work. We hope you will enjoy this replay. Our guest is Robert Garcia, and he's an old friend of mine, and I am the president of the Robert Garcia fan club, or at least the vice president after his wife, Susan. Robert Garcia is a civil rights attorney who engages, educates, and empowers communities to seek equal access to public and natural resources. He is the founding director and counsel of the City Project, a nonprofit legal and policy advocacy organization in Los Angeles, California. Robert graduated from Stanford University and Stanford Law School and is an assistant professor at the Charles Drew University of Medicine and Science. Welcome, Robert. Thank you very much. It's a real pleasure to be here. And I should let our audience know that our co-host, my co-host, Mike Hancox, is unable to be with us today, and he senses profound regrets, Robert. I'm, I'm sorry to miss him. Uh, we had a great dinner in D.C., was it? Uh, no, I think that was Portland. Portland, Portland. At the, at the New Partners of Smart Growth Conference. Yes. 
All righty. So I'm going to jump right in. Is that okay with you? Please. All right. So tell me about the moment you realized fighting for civil rights and becoming a civil rights attorney would be your life's work. I think it was the summer after my junior year in college at Stanford. I read a on-campus newspaper article about Anthony Amsterdam, who was a law professor at Stanford and the architect behind the movement to abolish the death penalty through the courts. And the article talked about the fact that Tony Amsterdam routinely argued cases in the U.S. Supreme Court on Eighth Amendment death penalty grounds, First Amendment freedom of speech grounds, Fifth Amendment, Fourth Amendment search and seizure grounds. And very importantly, it said he had never charged a client. And he basically represented unpopular people in unpopular causes. And I thought to myself, what a great way to live your life. And I later went to Stanford Law School because Tony was there. And I had the great pleasure of studying with Tony. He's the greatest professor I've ever had. Everything I've ever done as an attorney has been influenced by Tony Amsterdam. Is he still teaching at Stanford? He moved from Stanford to NYU, New York University Law Mm -hmm. School, where he teaches now. Wow. And he is still behind the efforts to abolish the death penalty through the courts. Wow, that's quite an inspiration, and you were so lucky to to be in his orbit. So you've been a key proponent, Robert, for using traditional civil rights approaches to advancing environmental justice. Since the days of the legal victory you helped to achieve for the Bus Riders Union versus the Los Angeles Metropolitan Transportation Authority over the unequal funding of the surface bus system. Tell us what that victory achieved and why it was so important, and where were you working at the time? I was an attorney at the NAACP Legal Defense Fund here in Los Angeles. The law firm started by Thurgood Marshall, the greatest civil rights law firm in the history of the nation. And we filed in 1994 a lawsuit against the Los Angeles County Metropolitan Transportation Authority, the MTA, on behalf of the Labor Community Strategy Center and the Bus Riders Union. And it's become a historic civil rights and transportation justice, environmental justice victory. We demonstrated that MTA operated separate and unequal bus and rail systems that discriminated against the working poor and people of color with limited or no access to a car. We filed a suit in 1994. We settled it in 1996 when MTA agreed under a court order to invest what amounted to about $2 billion with a B over the next 10 years to keep bus fares low and to improve bus transit countywide. It was a huge victory. We brought it under Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. We argued both intentional discrimination and unjustified discriminatory impacts. Bill Ann Lee, who was my co-counsel in the case, along with Connie Rice and Richard Larson, Bill said it was the largest civil rights settlement ever in terms of the dollar value of the settlement. Bill later became Assistant Attorney General for Civil Rights in the Clinton administration. So it was a huge, huge victory. It's a historic case. Edward Soja, a professor at UCLA, has written a book about it, calling it a remarkable moment in American urban history Hmm. and a best practice for community agitation nationwide. 
So, Robert, you and I are part of a coalition that's been trying to get the Environmental Protection Agency and other federal agencies to take seriously the intent of Title VI of the Civil Rights Act. Could you share with our audience a little bit about Title VI and why it's such an important tool in the battle for environmental justice? Absolutely. I am a civil rights attorney. I am an environmental justice and health attorney. We consider environmental justice the environmental arm of the civil rights movement. And we focus most specifically on equal access to parks and recreation. We have since we started the city project in 2000. And many people wonder, how is that a civil rights issue? But in fact, access to parks has been a central part of the civil rights movement ever since Brown versus Board of Education. And shortly after Brown, the NAACP Legal Defense Fund took another case to the U.S. Supreme Court. And the U.S. Supreme Court recognized that the principle in Brown of equal justice and dignity for all applied to other publicly funded resources as well, including municipal parks and pools. Similarly, in 1963, civil rights activists were conducting wade-ins along with the sit-ins. In the wade-ins, they would go to segregated beaches and segregated pools and jump in. And they were fought by sheriffs and dogs, just the way the Wadens activists were fought. But we've always recognized that equal access to public resources is a core part of the battle for justice and dignity for all. The Civil Rights Act of 1964 was passed in the wake of the Martin Luther King-led March in Washington and his I Have a Dream speech. Title VI is one provision that we rely on the most. It basically prohibits both intentional discrimination as well as unjustified and unnecessary discriminatory impacts based on race, color, or national origin by recipients of federal funding. And intentional discrimination remains an important tool. People think we're living in a post-racial society and intent is no longer an issue. That's wrong. The best argument or the best evidence that intentional discrimination exists today is Donald Trump. We are a nonpartisan organization. We don't take positions on individual candidates, but Trump's comments on Mexicans being rapists and criminals and Muslims should be kept out of the nation and deported. Other xenophobic efforts like building a wall between the U.S. and Latin America. These are the kinds of intentional discrimination explicit forms that had become less common, but unfortunately remain alive in the nation today. In addition, the prohibition against unjustified discriminatory impacts, the U.S. Supreme Court has recognized as recently as last year in the fair housing context, that the prohibition against discriminatory impacts remains vital to move the nation away from two or three societies based on race and color towards one society with equal opportunity for all. And the United States Supreme Court recognized that residential segregation historically continues today. That is part of the legacy of the history of discrimination. And residential segregation contributes to many of the disparities that we see in cities and rural areas, disparities in fair housing, decent housing, disparities in health, disparities in access to green space, disparities in quality education, disparities in the kinds of jobs you have access to 
disparities in transportation to get to the jobs and schools and parks, and in general, disparities in infrastructure. The Civil Rights Act of 1964, specifically Title VI, is an, a cross-cutting measure. Anybody that receives federal funding, be it a university, a government, state or local government agency, a private organization, signs an agreement to avoid unjustified discriminatory impacts as a condition of receiving federal funding. That's why it's such a powerful tool. And if they violate that, what are some of the levers that the federal government could then take if they don't adhere to that agreement that they sign with, with the agency that gives them the federal money? I think there's two responses to your question. One is how do you avoid intentional discrimination and unjustified discriminatory impacts in the planning process so you never get to the question of you violated the law, what do we do now? And the city project with other allies has long relied on a five-point planning process to ensure compliance with civil rights standards. And the five steps are very simple. They're common sense, but they are, for example, required by the Federal Transit Administration and other agencies. First step is simply describe what you plan to do. For example, in Los Angeles, there was a proposal to build warehouses in downtown. Are you going to build warehouses or are you going to put in a park? Second, analyze the benefits and burdens of each. And that includes statistical evidence, such as GIS mapping and statistical social science evidence, as well as anecdotal evidence. And anecdotal evidence is what we call walking around the neighborhood methodology. You ask the people, what would you rather have here, a park or warehouses? Third, you consider the alternatives. If you want federal money to build warehouses, also consider the park alternative. Fourth, include people of color and low-income people in the decision-making process. And five, develop an implementation plan to ensure equity, to ensure sustainable communities, smarter communities. And as part of that, avoid discrimination. And it's necessary as part of that plan to define the standards in advance to measure progress and hold public officials accountable. So that is the core promise of equal justice to publicly funded resources. If a, a grantee, a recipient of federal funding, nevertheless engages in intentional discrimination, the federal government has several al alternatives, ultimately withholding federal funding. But short of that, compliance reviews to see if you're in fact complying with the agreements and the law, um, providing guidance documents, providing um, helping with community engagement so that the community knows what's going on and so forth. And they also can ask for restitution of those federal funds, right? They can withdraw those federal funds. They can withhold federal funds, stop any further federal funding. Whether they can get any of the money back is a harder question. They can ultimately ask the Department of Justice to file a lawsuit. And in that context, courts can be creative in the remedy that they provide. And so for our audience, the reason that I've asked Robert to really talk about this in depth is because this is really one of the more unknown tools by the broader environmental, social justice, equitable development, smart growth community that is a powerful, powerful, but infrequently used tool to really advance equal treatment before the law, but also equal application and investment of federal resources to all communities, regardless 
of who they are. And that's been a huge part of the environmental justice debate and discourse. And we continue to try and work with many federal agencies to get them to really believe in the power and the letter of the law and do enforcement on their side. In the environment and natural resources section of the federal government, that has not been the case. And we continue to struggle with them about that. But this case, the Bus Riders Union case that Robert was one of the attorneys on is really one of the only victories that we have seen accomplished under Title VI in the environmental justice context. So it's really, really, really important. So Robert, I want to ask you, of all the things that you could have done, you've been an assistant district attorney in New York, you've worked for Clippy in California, the Center for Public Interest Law in California, you've done so many things in your legal career. But when you stepped out to do your own thing and create the City Project, the thing that you focused on was equal access to parks, beaches, national parks, and other natural resources that you saw are pivotal to advancing racial, social, and environmental equality. Why is this the arena that you decided to focus on? Well, first of all, Richard Reardon was mayor of L.A., and he had just lost the MTA case. And he called me into his office and he said, Robert, park access, there are so many disparities in park access in Los Angeles that you need to bring a civil rights lawsuit to make things better. And I did a double take and I opened the door and I said, Mayor, it says mayor on the door. Why don't you do something about it? And he said, I need the hammer of a lawsuit to make things happen. Wow. We looked into it and we applied the same Title VI framework, legal framework, that we won with in the MTA case, and we applied it to park access, and the mayor was right. So we started at the time in 2000, the city of L.A., and a wealthy developer wanted to build 32 acres of warehouses in downtown L.A., uh, the last vast open space in downtown Los Angeles, without any environmental study and without considering the park alternative and without including people of color in the decision-making process. So we filed an administrative complaint with Andrew Cuomo, who was then Secretary of HUD. The city was asking HUD for federal subsidies. And we also filed a lawsuit under the California Environmental Quality Act separately. Andrew Cuomo, to his credit, sent a letter to the city of L.A. and said, we've listened to the community. I will not issue a penny of federal subsidies unless you consider the park alternative and consider the impact on people of color as part of your study of whether or not there should be a warehouse or a park there. As a result of that, we reached a deal with the city and the developer. If we could persuade the state to buy the land for a park, the developer would withdraw that warehouse proposal. We did persuade the state to do that. Today, it is Los Angeles State Historic Park, and Andrew Cuomo explicitly relied on Title VI and the President's Executive Order on Environmental Justice 12898 in reaching that decision. So the cornfield was our flagship project. It was our first project. If we had lost, we would no longer be in business because nobody would have taken us seriously, but we won. And it's hugely important for people, parks, and planning in LA. Senator Kevin DeLeon, who's the president of the California State Senate, the first Latino president in 130 years, recognized when the state park was dedicated, as he said, this park is not here because of the vision of any politician or any plan by the city. This park is here because of community agitation led by the City Project and Anawaki Sports Association and concerned citizens of South Central Los Angeles and others. This rightly deserves recognition as the greatest environmental justice victory in Los Angeles. 
This also led to the greening of the L.A. River. So Senator Kevin DeLeon not only speaks truth to power, he is power. He said those things. In contrast now, other elected officials and, and, and agencies and nonprofits are all taking credit for the greening of the L.A. River and it's part of their vision and so on. They try to forget and ignore and marginalize the history that it has been a history of struggle and litigation and access to justice through the courts and civil rights compliance to get to where we are today. And the short answer is when we started this, you know, the MTA case took us two years and I figured, okay, parks, who can be against parks for children? Everybody knows there's not enough parks in LA, especially for children of color. This should be easy, maybe two to three years, and then we'll move on to do something else. We are still here 16 years later because it is so hard to persuade people and politicians that our children matter, that children of color matter, that they are entitled to the simple joys of playing in the park. So we're still here. We're still fighting. That's why the City Project is focused on this. So, Robert, you talked a little bit about the L.A. River. I also I think I want to close by asking you about the recent designations of new national parks. But let's talk a little bit about the efforts to restore the Los Angeles River. It has gained quite a bit of national attention. But when you were helping to lead this fight in 2000, along with the Friends of the L.A. River and the communities up and down the river, there were not a lot of takers. What has made this campaign so successful? So the Army Corps of Engineers just did a big plan to support the expansion of the river and restoration of the river. It is one of the designated Federal Urban Waters National Partnership locations. Lots of funders are looking at it. Other environmentalists are looking at it. But I remember hearing you talk about it at a conference of the Environmental Grantmakers Association in 2000, where you talked about this. And and for me, all the bells and whistles went off because I said, these are the things we should be funding. These are the things we should be getting behind. And there were not a lot of takers. So what made you step out there in 2000 and really fight for the restoration of the L.A. River? The recognition Ultimately, we were fighting for the sake of the children, not only today's children, but future generations of children, so that they have fun places to play. But we quickly learned that a child's right to play doesn't get us very far in the society. It was only when we started focusing on the health aspects of the lack of physical activity. Children of color and low-income children disproportionately suffer from obesity, diabetes, and asthma, and other diseases related to inactivity. When we started addressing the full range of values at stake in green space, first of all, fun, health, and human development, including better academic performance if students are physically fit, they stay in school longer, they graduate at better rates. First, fun, health, and human development. Second, conservation values, including climate justice. We now recognized climate is changing faster than we anticipated. Parks can help reduce the urban carbon footprint and reduce the impact of climate disproportionately impacts people of color and they disproportionately support measures to combat climate. So first, fun, health, human development. Second, climate and conservation. Third, culture, history, art and spirituality. Many of the parks and green space are sacred to Native Americans. Many places are historic monuments like Cesar Chavez National Monument that make people connected 
to the land and the place and the history. A fourth is economic values, jobs and contracts for people of color, but also avoiding displacement and gentrification. Tragically, what we are seeing is that the people who have fought to green their communities and improve the quality of life for their children and themselves face the risk of displacement as their communities become greener, more desirable, and more expensive. They can no longer afford to live or even work nearby. And then finally, equal justice, democracy, and livability for all are the cross-cutting values underlying each of the others. So when we focus on those values and we were successful in our advocacy throughout LA in working with community allies, we have transformed the culture of Los Angeles in how they view the LA River, in how they view greening, in how they view climate, in how they view the importance of parks. So that is the lasting legacy of our work. It's not only the parks that have been created, and there are many, and it's not even the planning process and the compliance with the law, which is rewarding. Ultimately, we measure success by the smiles on children's faces from playing in parks and schools that did not exist before. And that's what we're the most proud of. The last big question is the City Project was a part of a very large campaign to get President Barack Obama and the Department of the Interior and the National Park Service to create a new national park and monument to commemorate Cesar Chavez and United Farm Workers and their efforts to protect the rights of farm workers in California's Central Valley and also to create the San Gabriel Mountains National Monument. What was that like and what does the creation of these national monuments mean to the civil rights movement today and the environmental justice movement today? What's the significance of these two steps by the president? President Barack Obama's creation of the Cesar Chavez National Monument, that is the first national monument honoring a Latino born in the U.S. after the 1700s. So that is huge in terms of telling people, Latino people, that we matter and that we're a part of this culture and country. And Cesar being a civil rights leader and a farm worker leader who also got the environmental justice issues because farm workers suffer from pollution, from pesticides and the heat and so on. That's a huge, huge boost for the Latino community. Even or just as importantly, President Obama dedicated the San Gabriel Mountains National Monument in October of 2014, and he flew out here. It was only the second time he had actually in person dedicated a national monument. The first was Cesar Chavez. The second was the San Gabriel Mountains National Monument. And he stood there and said, there are not enough parks in Los Angeles County, especially for children of color and low-income children. This is an issue of social justice. Because for me, access does not mean protecting these wilderness places in the middle of nowhere and nobody can see them. Access means access for all, young and old, black and white, Latinos, Asians, Native Americans. President Obama said those words in response to the community. We reached out directly to him in the White House through John Podesta, his counsel. We have a letter from John Podesta thanking us for making those issues front and center in the president's dedication. That is huge. That has catapulted the green justice movement to the national level, first of all. Second, other federal agencies, the National Park Service, 
recognizes these same three factors, as does the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers in greening the L.A. River. First, there's not enough park space, especially for children of color and low-income children. Second, that contributes to the health disparities based on those factors. Third, agencies have an obligation to alleviate those disparities under environmental justice laws and principles. And we're very thrilled that U.S. EPA has invited us to speak at the Inter- Agency Working Group on Environmental Justice next week in Washington, D.C., presenting these lessons on what federal agencies can do to advance civil rights protections and environmental justice protections. Well, you're going to have a big week next week because you've also been invited to address the Urban Waters Federal Partnership at their Urban Waters National Training Workshop. So I'm so glad to see that people around the country are recognizing the work of the City Project and the work that you've led, Robert, for so very long. And it's lessons that all of us can learn from. So before I get to these three quick lightning round questions, one more little thing that I, well, it's not little, it's big, that I think people would want to know about. So one of the maybe unintended consequences of successful environmental justice advocacy is that once you clean up a place that for so long has been distressed, forgotten about, disinvested in, and you begin to restore restore a natural area, you begin to restore a community, a park, whatever it is, and then people begin to see that there's value in those places, what often happens is that they become hot real estate markets, whereas for decades, they were places that people didn't want to go, though many people lived there, other people didn't know they existed or certainly went out of their way to avoid those communities. But now everybody wants to live in these places that people have long worked to restore. The LA River waterfront is going to be and is already becoming one of those places. What are you and your colleagues doing? What are you and the communities you've been organizing with doing to prevent these communities from being displaced after decades of suffering through sort of the industrial use of the LA River? How are they going to be able to hold on and to benefit from the investment and the restoration that's coming and that's happening? That's a question that's impacting a lot of places around the country, but it seems like a particularly hot conversation in Los Angeles right now. Absolutely. It's, it, the displacement and gentrification issue is huge, not only along the L.A. River, but, for example, in Linwood with the proposed building of a NFL football stadium. It's the same issue in San Francisco. The New York Times today has an article how lonely it feels to be black in San Francisco because so many black folks have moved out from a high of 13% in 1970. Have been forced out. They didn't just move out. They were forced out. Because of the economic situation, absolutely. And same thing is going on in Manhattan because of the High Line and, and, and other developments. First of all, we are studying to look for successful examples in which displacement and gentrification has been avoided or mitigated, and there are very few. Second, we do think it reflects the structural inequalities based on race, income, and wealth in this nation. So it's not enough to put in affordable housing. One question is affordable for whom? It is necessary to put in decent housing so that a diverse population can live in a city. You need people to clean your house. You need mechanics for your car. You need firemen. You need police officers. You need teachers as well as executive classes. So how do you provide housing for each of them? Part of it is you pay a living wage and you increase the safety net, like medical care, so that if people have more money, 
that they can devote to housing and transportation to get their jobs and so on, then they don't have to spend as big a percentage on a roof over their heads. Transportation is another critical component of it. But ultimately, it does raise core questions of the values of a society and of the free market. If left to market forces, people of color and low-income people will be displaced. And that is the central concern. That displacement, along with climate change, are the two biggest issues the City Project now confronts as a result of the greening work we have done. And we helped contribute to this crisis. We can feel compelled to help solve it. Well, we could talk to you for hours, Robert. There's just so much to talk about. This is such a big set of issues, but let's move on to the lightning round questions. But before we do, you mentioned that article in the New York Times today about the displacement of African-Americans in San Francisco. And just for the historical record and for our listeners, you know, let's mention the communities that used to exist. So the Western Edition, the Fillmore District and Bayview Hunters Point were the African-American communities in San Francisco. The Western Edition and the Fillmore District don't exist anymore. And Bayview Hunters Point is holding on by a thread, the remaining African-American residents that live there. But lest you think San Francisco is just the wharf or, you know, the beautiful parts, there were also some beautiful African-American communities and the Mission District, which was an extraordinary Latino community that's being gentrified out of existence. There's some upheaval going on in San Francisco, and I'm so glad the New York Times wrote about it today. So here's our lightning round questions, Robert. It's a quick question. I want you to answer with the first thing that pops in your head. If you could implement one change or pick one leverage point that would lead to smarter, more sustainable, and more equitable communities, what would it be? Community planning that engages the people and that ensures compliance with equal justice laws, including Title VI, the Fair Housing Act, and the Affordable Care Act, which now also addresses health and residential segregation and discrimination. Next question. What one action could our listeners take to help build a more equitable and sustainable future? Uh, this is self-serving, but donate to the City Project because we need <laughs> your support. You can go to our website, www.cityprojectca.org. And there's a button there where you can make secure online donations. And if you're successful in the work that you and the City Project are doing, what does California, our national parks, our natural resources and monuments look like 30 years from now? The visitors to the parks, as well as the staff, the rangers in the parks, will reflect the diversity of the nation. And the nation is increasingly becoming populated with people of color, millennials in particular, young people are disproportionately of color compared to previous generations. This year in 2016, over half of the leadership of the National Park Service is retiring. They are disproportionately white and male. And frankly, they don't have a pipeline of diverse men and women to take their places. So we need to create jobs in the parks and we need to take the people to the parks so that people recognize, all people recognize, these are our national parks, these are our state parks. This land is your land, this my land is my land. And they have to have jobs and have fun in those green lands. 
Thank you so much, Robert, for joining us today. You continue to inspire us with your work. You continue to be a personal hero of mine. I don't know what I would do if I didn't have you in this space with me. Though you're 3,000 miles away, I often feel like you are just right around the corner and you're always there. Thanks, Robert. Thank you. And thank you all for joining us today. And we hope you will join us again next time on Infinite Earth Radio. Infinite Earth Radio is a podcast produced by Skio in association with the Local Government Commission. To learn more about Skio, the Local Government Commission, Infinite Earth Radio guests, or how you can make a difference in your community, visit our website at infiniteearthradio.com or join us on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash Infinite Earth Radio and Twitter by following at Infinite Earth Radio.